I always get nervous when the preaching is before the collection. I'm reminded of a story that Mark Twain used to tell. Now, Mark Twain wasn't a particularly... This thing's not... Is it? It doesn't matter. Let me make sure. Okay, it's not... Let me just take this off then. I'll try not to walk around. There we go. Mark Twain was not a particularly religious fellow. But he tells a story about one time when he went to a town to speak and he got there a day or so early so he had nothing to do and there was a missionary that was coming through town that was going to share some of the work he had been doing in the foreign mission fields and of course this was a long time ago. And so the man came and he spoke and Mark Twain was there and Mark Twain said later, you know, after 20 minutes I had determined that this man's work was so valuable that I was going to give him $100. Now, this was way back when $100 was money. You know, before you could spend $100 and then have it all in one hand and still have the other hand free to open the door to your house when you go in. This was back when money was money. He says, after 20 minutes, I was going to give him $100. He said, after 30 minutes, I figured probably 75 would be okay. He said, after 45 minutes... I thought, well, you know, probably about 25 or 30 ought to do it for this fellow. He said, by the time they passed the plate, I took five out. So, uh, you know, I just, I'll try not to keep you so long that you feel tempted to take five out when it, when it comes around. Acts chapter 4 is an interesting passage of Scripture. We're in the beginning, the infancy of the Lord's church. She had begun in Acts chapter 2. It's very interesting, actually, in the Greek in Acts chapter 2, Although that usually when we read Acts chapter 2 verse 41, and they that gladly received his word were baptized, and they were added that day unto them about 3,000 souls. Or about 3,000 souls were added that day to them. The to them is not in the Greek. That's just supplied to help. There was no them in reality. That day, about 3,000 souls were added. There was no existing group to which they could be added. That was, grammatically speaking, obviously God's way of sharing. This is the beginning of the church. Now, verse 47, he added to the church daily, such as were being saved. But verse 41 was the day that the church started. And so there were simply added that day about 3,000 souls. From then on, all those who became children of God were added to them. And so in Acts chapter 3, we have a record of Peter's second recorded sermon in the city of Jerusalem. And then a great miracle has taken place. A man that couldn't walk, and, and Peter and John, he said, give me money. And they said, out of the silver and gold, I don't have any of that. But what I have, I'll give to you. I'm telling you, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And the man got up, and he walked. So the Lord's church, the Lord's church was off to an amazing start. I mean, and you think about it, you've got the Sanhedrin Council, who were the 70, 72, depending on how you count it, the 70 folks, for the most part, who ruled, if you will, the, the, the primary life of the, particularly around the region of Jerusalem. They were a powerful religious group of people. Granted, they were under Roman rule politically, but in reality, the religious leaders of the day held a great amount of power and authority over the lives of the everyday man and woman in Jesus' time. 
And so here you have this ruling council. And suddenly, this upstart religion is just taken off like crazy. I mean, 3,000 converted the first day. And now, daily, people are being added. And as we read a little bit later, just, just not that much later, after this particular incident in chapter 4, a great many of the priests believed and were added to the cause of Christ. And the number of men was up to about 5,000. I mean, the church was going nuts. It was growing like crazy. And you know this caught the attention of the Sanhedrin Council probably overnight. Rest assured, they know exactly what happened. They knew what went on on the day of Pentecost. It was, after all, a major Jewish feast day. They were there. Probably some of the 70 were literally witnesses of what was going on when Peter and the other apostles got up and preached and 3,000 people responded in a positive way. And now, now what's happening? Now, to the Sanhedrin's ears comes news that a great miracle has taken place. And more people are being converted to follow this rabble-rouser from Galilee this Jesus fella, who supposedly, the story goes, was resurrected from the dead, and now a great miracle has happened in his name, and more and more people are starting to follow this guy. They couldn't deny the miracle, because they saw it themselves. Everybody saw it. This man had been sitting there in the temple area for years. People knew him. He could not walk. And now he's not only walking, he's running, jumping, leaping, and praising God. They can't deny it. They can't say, well, it's just fake. You know, this guy was lame way before Jesus ever died. This guy had been known as a cripple for years. They, they couldn't say, well, this is all fake, this was all staged. No, no, no. No, it was a real miracle. So what are they going to do? Well, they did the only thing they knew how to do. They had Peter and John arrested. And Peter and John came before the same council that just not that many weeks prior had managed to pull together enough power to have Jesus put to death. These are the same guys. Same group that managed to have Jesus crucified. And Peter and John now are standing in front of them. And trust me, rest assured, they're human. The memory of what happened to Jesus that night at Caiaphas' house and Annas' house and how the power of the Sanhedrin Council, how that Judas had worked with them to figure out how to betray Jesus. Don't think they forgot all that over these few months or weeks or however long it had been since that day at Calvary. They, they hadn't forgotten. They knew who they were looking at. And these same fellows threatened them. And they said, you will not preach and teach anymore in the name of this Jesus of Nazareth. Just You just don't do it. You just hush about it. We've heard all of that we want to hear. Now what's going to be their response? What are they going to say? Well, what I'd like us to do for a few minutes is to, to personalize the growth of faith in the infant church of our Lord by kind of bringing it all, by looking at Peter. 
Let's just concentrate for a few minutes on Peter. The title of this lesson, if you want a title, is Courageous Faith for a New Generation. The church is brand new. And Peter is in a position of influence, leadership, if you will, in this new enterprise, the body of Christ. So let's look for a few minutes at the life of Simon Peter. Because after all, his given name, his parents did not name him Peter. His parents named him Simon. That was his name. He was Simon, the son of John, Simon Barjona. That, that was his name. And, and he had a brother named Andrew. And the name Simon was a rather common name among the Jews. It's not like that was just some odd name that, you know, was special. And no, no, no. It just is a rather common name. And when you look at Simon, and we track his, his, his escapades, that just what we have recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we see that he was naturally impulsive, a bit perhaps unstable, unsteady. And these things cropped up from time to time. In fact, the idea behind the name Simon in, in the Greek, and I mean in the Hebrew, the names and stuff is kind of like a little flighty dove, like a little flighty bird. It just goes from one place to another, one to another, one to another. You know, here and there and there and here. I, I mentioned in Sunday school that I like to, like to hunt. And, and I know years ago one time, it was right about, it was just after sunset, just about getting dark where it was time to get down out of my tree stand and climb down out of that tree and head back to the truck. And, and you know, all these little birds, they're trying to figure out where they're going to roost for the night. And I mean, just this little flock of probably several hundred just small songbirds. And they're flitting around from over to this tree. And the next thing you know, they're over and in there. I'm just watching them. They're just, they can't seem to settle. They just go here and there and there and here. Just everything's all kind of, you know, just, I don't know. And then in the middle of all that, here comes this hawk. Right at the treetop level. Just not making a sound. Just soaring at, I mean, in a straight line. Exactly like he knew where he was headed. He had a purpose. He wasn't flitting around. He knew where he was going. He had it in mind and he was, that's, Peter's the little bird. That just from one tree to the other, just, you know, going here and there and there. Can't decide exactly where to settle. Or rather, that's Simon. That's the idea behind the name. He was so human. So much like, let me see, he was so much like, in a lot of ways, well, me, for instance. Because so often, Peter Simon opened his mouth before he thought about what he was trying to say. You ever open your mouth before your mind is opened? I've got, in fact, I've got a sermon with overheads and everything one of these days. I hadn't preached it in a long, long time. But it's called Peter, the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth. Because that's where his foot found itself probably way too many times. But think about this. Simon, Peter, he spoke more often in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the gospel accounts other than Jesus, Jesus spoke more than anybody. The next person who is quoted more than anyone else in the gospel accounts, right behind Christ, is Peter. And he was the person most often spoken to by Jesus. Jesus addressed more words in Peter's direction, in Simon's direction, than to any other person in his ministry, as we have it recorded in Scripture. Simon Peter was the most praised by Jesus. 
Jesus did not pour more accolades on any other individual more than he did on Simon Peter. However, at the other end of the spectrum, he also was the person who was the most rebuked by Jesus. We do not have any record that Jesus fussed at anybody more than he fussed at Simon Peter. He was the only apostle who rebuked Jesus. You remember? Hey, Jesus, quit! you're not going to die. Quit talking about that. That's not going to happen. I'm not going to die. You just hush about that. You quit telling us how. We're not going to let that happen. He's the only apostle who tried to get Jesus to hush, who rebuked Jesus. He's the only disciple, not just apostle, but the only disciple in the whole New Testament ever referred to as Satan. When Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, he was talking to Simon Peter. He asked the most questions. And in turn, he had the most questions asked of him. He was the most of all the apostles. He was the most impulsive and the most active. Who walked on the water? Well, it wasn't John. It wasn't Andrew. It wasn't Simon the Zealot. Oh, no, no, it was Simon Peter. He's the one that threw his legs over the side of the boat and jumped off and did something that he knew he couldn't do, but he did it anyway. Who cut off Malchus's ear in the garden that evening? Simon Peter. Who denied Christ? Simon. Who was the first one to enter the tomb? You remember that story? Another way I figure Simon Peter was a whole lot like me. You know, the ladies come and they tell them, they say, look, the body of Jesus is gone. There was a man in white said he's risen from the dead, but we couldn't find him. And he told us to come and tell you, fellas. And Peter, he especially said to tell you that Jesus is going to see you soon. Well, you know what happens? Peter and John head for the grave. They head for the cemetery. Now, John apparently is younger than Peter. John's probably one of these jogger guys and he goes out there and kind of has his body fat down about 11 12%. And he runs, and Peter's huffing and puffing. John gets there first. John outran Peter. That's why I figure Peter was a lot like me. You know, it doesn't take much to outrun me. But what did John do when he got there? Oh, he waited. I mean, this is a tomb. You don't just go willy-nilly into a tomb. Well, Peter did. He, you get the impression he didn't even slow down. Just right on in there. Rock was moved, here he goes. No hesitation. That's Simon Peter. And then after the resurrection, when Jesus is on the on the banks of the Sea of Galilee broiling some fish, and they've been out fishing all night, and this man from the shore hollers at him, Wanna let your nets down? And it's like, Man, alive, we've been fishing, hadn't caught a thing. What is it? So when they did, said, Ah, let's give it one more try. Who knows? The guy's probably a nutcase, but let's try it anyway. When they let the nets down and pulled them up so full of fish that the nets nearly broke, Peter said, that is Jesus. And he couldn't wait. <clears throat> I don't know. They weren't probably more than 100 yards offshore. He couldn't wait. He jumped in the water and swam to say hey to Jesus on the seashore. That's Simon, the impulsive, active apostle. And when you look at him, he seemed to be the spokesman for the apostles. You remember? You know, Simon Peter asked the question, how often should I forgive? Is Jesus, if I have somebody that sins against me, and he keeps doing it, how often should I forgive him? Well, now you think 
Simon Peter was the only one that cared about that? Oh, no, no. I'm sure the others had a vested interest in the answer too. But who asked the question? Oh, well, Simon. And then you know, you can just see this one. Hey, Simon, go ask him what's in this for us. You know, you and Andrew and James and John, you got, you four guys gave up a successful fishing enterprise. You know, Matthew, man alive, he was making money hand over fist as a tax collector for the Romans. I mean, and he quit that. You know, Simon the Zealot, he was, he was zealously, actively working to overthrow the Roman government. He quit that. You know, all of us, we all had something we were doing. You know, some of us have families, wives, kids. You know, what's in this for us? So who asked the question? Well, Simon Peter. The others didn't ask, but you know, I can see them now. Simon, go ask Jesus. Hey, go ask him. Come on. You know, go ask him. So he does. Well, Jesus... What's in this for us? What what are we going to get out of this? And then, you know, Jesus curses that fig tree that time. Now, don't you know all of them were wondering what that meant? Who asked about it? Simon Peter, not the other. Lord, would you please explain that fig tree business from the other day? Can you can you tell me, you know, what that was all about? And then, of course, one you know, you know all of them wanted to know the answer to this one. Jesus? Do we have to pay taxes? You know they wanted an answer to that one. But who asked? Always Simon. And the names reflect the man. Simon, the very human man. But then Peter. Peter, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon, bar Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say unto you that you are Peter. That's where Peter came from. That's the name Jesus gave him, not the name his mom and dad gave him. Now, his mom and dad called him Simon, and Jesus recognized that. He said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah, but I'm going to call you Peter from now on. Why? Because Petros, Petros means rock. And Jesus knew that Simon was still Simon, but one day Jesus wanted him to become Peter. He wanted him to be that unmovable rock of faith and conviction. He had a ways to go. But Jesus went ahead and assigned him that name in hope that he would fulfill the purpose of the name. That's the man. The very human Simon. The solid rock Peter. And you know what's interesting? In most of the Gospels, he's called Peter. Matthew, Mark, Luke, they generally refer to him as Peter. Read John. John, his former partner. John never could quite decide. All the way through the Gospel of John, he's called Simon Peter. Have you ever noticed that? It's like John never could quite figure out, is he still that hot-tempered Galilean Simon that I've known all my life, or is he that solid rock committed Peter that Jesus wanted him to be? I'm just going to play it safe and call him Simon Peter. So all the way through the gospel according to John, it's Simon Peter, Simon Peter, Simon Peter. Everybody else Peter, but no, John, Simon Peter. And he had his Peter moments. He had those solid rock moments. There's no question about that. You remember, already referenced, when he got the name Peter, Matthew 16, 15 and 16, who do men say that I am, Jesus said. Well, some say you're Elijah and Isaiah, one of the prophets. 
He said, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter spoke up and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Oh, he had his Peter moments. You remember in John chapter 6, Jesus had fed 5,000 men plus women and children with a few fish and a few loaves of bread. And it's the next day. They've gone across that lake. We call it the Sea of Galilee. It was only about, it's only about 14 miles long, north to south, and about seven miles wide. So it really wasn't even a humongous lake necessarily. But, and you could get across it even with the, with the, you know, the sails or the rows or that rowboats, whatever they had. You know, you could cross it in not an unreasonable amount of time. And so when he had fed the multitudes, they went across on a boat to the other side. And the multitude caught up with him a day or so later. And basically their message was, hey, Jesus, you know, that fish and bread the other day without having to work for it, that sure was some good stuff. Can you do that again? Can you feed us again and we'll just follow you to the end of the day, end of days, if you just keep feeding us? And so then he brought the message home. And he said, the food you need to eat is my flesh and my blood. The food you eat to eat is the, need to eat is the bread that came down from heaven. You need to ingest and digest my word because it's in that that you have life. And if you're not willing to eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you, and God will not raise you up in the last day. And when they heard that, they said, boy, that's a hard saying. That's tough. I don't quite understand. Is he telling us to be cannibals? I don't. And he says, so many of his disciples, they walked away. They quit being his followers at that point, and the multitude left. And it's then that Jesus turns to his apostles. And he is indeed the Son of God. He was then, he is now. Divine every moment of his existence, and yet... He was human as much as you and I. Otherwise, his sacrifice would have been pointless. If he did not die as a man, then his death is just a waste of time. Because if as a man he did not conquer this life, then you and I have no hope of conquering this life either. And yet we can. Romans 8, 35-39. So Jesus was a man and he is God. And as a man, he felt the same emotions you and I feel. Think about it. Just a day or so before, you had this huge multitude that said, let's make him king. He is great. We want him to be our ruler. Because he gave them free food. And then when he tried to teach them that very important lesson of life that we need to give our kids is that there ain't no free lunch, they turned away and left. And so from wanting him to be king about 24 hours or so later, they don't even want to hear what he has to say. And so in disappointment, I'm sure, he turns to his apostles and he says, are you going to leave too? And who speaks up? Peter. And he says, Lord, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And then in Matthew chapter 14, when... The disciples, the apostles are out there in that boat and suddenly a storm comes whipping down the Jordan Valley 
and rolls up that water into waves, and, and they're scared. They think they're going to die. They're going to drown. These guys, couple, some of them, as you already know, made their living on that body of water. They know how dangerous these, particularly in the wintertime, these storms can be and how quickly they can come up. And, man, they are out there rowing against it, and they're trying their best just to keep from getting capsized. They want to get to one bank or the other, one end, one side or the other, and they're scared to death. And Jesus had retreated into the mountains to pray and perhaps miraculously, I don't know how this worked, but he saw them out there. And so then rather quickly, he somehow got out to where they were. And they saw him. And he was walking on the water. And now, in addition to the fact that they think they're going to drown, suddenly they're being attacked by a ghost. And now they're really scared. It's a ghost! And Jesus says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. It's me. And Peter says, well, Lord, if it's really you, let me walk out there to you. So Jesus says, come on. And we call this one of Peter's faithless moments. I call it one of Peter's shining moments of great faith. Oh, it's true. He lost it there for a second. But this is a man who grew up on the water. He knew with all his heart and with all his mind and every fiber of his being, he knew it's impossible for a man to walk on top of the water. But just because Jesus said, come on, he slung both legs over the side of that boat, jumped out, and stood on top of the water. And that is impossible. And he knew it. And he started walking on that water toward Jesus. But then finally, his common sense, if you want to call it that, overtook his faith. And he looked around at the wind blowing and the waves crashing. And he remembered I can't do this. You know, nobody can do what I'm doing. And he began to sink. And the Lord saved him. But where were the other 11? Not a one of them slung one big toe over the side of that boat. They were hugging the mast. They were probably tied down. They were doing everything they could to stay away from the side of the boat. Peter's out there walking on water. So he had his Peter moments, but he also had his Simon times. You remember at the Last Supper, John 13, Jesus washed the disciples' feet and he came to Peter. And he's, Peter says, Ah, nope, no, uh-uh, you're not going to wash my feet. No, sir, you're my master. I ought to be washing yours. Of course, Jesus could have said, Then, Peter, why didn't you pick up the towel when you walked in like I did? But Jesus didn't do that. And Peter said, You're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus said, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, then you're not one of mine and you have no part with me. Whoo, Lord, then give me a bath. Just don't stop at my feet. Wash my hair, my head. My... And Jesus said, Peter, calm down. You don't need a bath. Your feet are dirty. They need to be washed. But for the most part, you're clean. Except one. And of course, now he's talking spiritually speaking. But there's that Simon trying to tell Jesus what to do. And then in Matthew 16, amazingly, Right after Matthew records how Jesus said, "You are the," uh, Peter said, "You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God." The very next interaction he has with Jesus is when Jesus, Matthew records, Jesus began then to teach them that he would go to Jerusalem, he would be arrested, he would be put to death, and he would rise the third day. And Peter says, "Lord, this won't happen to you." Quit talking about that stuff. You're not going to die. And that's when Jesus said, get 
behind me, Satan. You don't know what you're talking about. Just hush, Peter. Just hush. So he had his Peter moments, but he had his Simon times. The ultimate Simon moment is Matthew 26, 69 through 75. He's warming himself at the wrong spot. And Jesus is in the high priest's house. And a little girl comes up and says, Hey, aren't you one of his disciples? Didn't I see you with him? Oh, no, 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 not me. Huh? Now, I don't know the fellow. I'm just kind of, I'm just out of curiosity. I'm just, he moved around to another group of folks. Then somebody else came up and said, Now, wait a minute. I'm pretty sure you're one of his disciples. I, I'm almost positive, you know, that I was there that day we ate that stuff. It seems like you, you fed me some fish that day. That's Watkins' paraphrase. No, I swear to you. I swear to you. By all that's holy. I don't know the man. And he slides on over to another group. Finally, another little girl comes up and says, I know you're one of his disciples. You have a Yankee accent. You're not from Jerusalem. You're from up there in Galilee. You don't sound like us. You're on them old Galileans, and that's where that fellow's from. You're one of his disciples, aren't you? And at that point, he said, called down cursing on himself and swore, I don't know him. And the rooster crowed for the second time, and Luke says Jesus looked through either an open window, an open doorway. Jesus looked at him. And Peter looked back, and immediately he knew he had done exactly what Jesus told him he would do not that long before. And he had promised Jesus with all his heart that I will die before I deny you. And he almost did in the garden. But then just a few hours later, his cowardice takes over. His faith runs away. He finds himself in the wrong crowd by his own choosing. And he denies his friend, his master, and his savior. And the Bible tells us he went out and wept bitterly. And now, now in front of the Sanhedrin in Acts 4, the denier becomes the defender. See, Peter was gaining a reputation among the people. If you jump over to the very next chapter in Acts chapter 5, verse 15, they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. That's the reputation Peter was building among the people. He was becoming unbelievably important. And folks, this posed a real danger for the Jewish leaders. They were in real danger of losing their stranglehold over the religious lives and for a lot of it, for the economic and every other way, of the people of Jerusalem. And so Peter and John are now standing before Annas and Caiaphas, the same folks who judged Jesus. The same ones who judged Jesus. And they say, you will not. Don't be too hard on him. You, <laughs> I can remember those days. The screamer and the one taking them out. Um, I've been both, as most of you have. But anyway, he was standing before the same people who had put Jesus to death. And they threatened him. Now, who's going to open his mouth? Would he be Simon? Or is he going to be Peter? The rock that Jesus wants him to be. 
And I wonder, don't you figure that some of these men on the Sanhedrin Council probably had heard what Peter had done at the high priest's house that night? Don't you reckon they knew that he already had denied Christ once when he was put under pressure? Don't you figure that probably that news had gotten back to them? And they're thinking, he did it once. We can get him to do it again. Maybe, maybe this Peter can be brought down one more time. And this new movement, this new church thing, this Jesus thing, this whole movement may just die if its greatest leader shows that he truly, deep down, is a coward. People will lose their confidence. They'll be disillusioned. And the whole movement maybe will die. And so the decision was made by the council, don't kill them, back them down with a threat. Because, see, they didn't need another martyr. They already had one of those. His name was Jesus, and he was giving them fits. They didn't need another martyr. What they needed was a human. That's what they needed. A human man who was fearful for his life. And do you wonder? I mean, the Bible doesn't record it, but I wonder. Don't you figure that they probably reminded him? Uh, Peter, John, by the way, you recall, it wasn't that long ago, that this Jesus fellow that you claim to be following, you remember we talked to him? That night, you recall what happened to him later on the next day? Remember where he ended up? Remember the sound of those nails being driven into his hands and feet? Remember watching him die on that cross? We did that, you know. Don't think we can't do it again. Now, you are not going to preach anymore in his name. I mean, I don't know if the council reminded Peter and John of what they had done to Jesus, but I do know that the boldness of Peter and John reminded the council of Jesus. So I don't doubt that they would have sent it back to him. They're looking for Simon, the human man, to make an appearance. So the threat was made. Do not speak anymore in his name. I don't know exactly how it happened. I can picture that there may have been a moment of silence. And if there was, you know that the tension in the room could have been cut with a knife. It must have been thick. I mean, this is a critical moment in the life of the church. What's about to happen? What are they going to say? I can imagine the angels, angels in heaven peering down over the edge with great interest in what is about to happen. And don't you know that Jesus himself seated at the right hand of the throne of God, was watching this scene intently. Don't speak anymore in his name. And then the silence was broken. And when he opened his mouth, everybody knew Simon had been crucified and buried with Christ, and Peter was now alive and well. And you are not going to shut him up. You are not going to back him down. He is not ever going to deny Christ again. If it costs him his life, he will gladly pay it. And look what happened. Other people saw his courage and followed his example. The church was emboldened through faith, and they were moved to serve, and many more people were won to Christ. And I want you to look with me very briefly, beginning in verse 23. Look at the prayer, the prayer that the saints prayed. 
And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David has said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may proclaim your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Notice their prayer. They did not ask God to take away the threats. No, they didn't do that at all. They asked for courage to speak out in spite of the danger. They didn't say, Lord, take the danger away. They said, no, Lord, you look at their threats and you give us the boldness, the courage to speak out. How was God, how did he think about that? God was pleased with the prayer and he shook the place. Perhaps today, as God's people, we need to pray big prayers and then expect big results because most of us need to be shaken by God and awakened out of our sleep so that the Lord's church will do just like it did in the first century. It will grow. Now the question is, what is my Sanhedrin? What is that one big thing? We all have it. What is that one thing that seems to be my great temptation? What is that thing that just seems to be over and over the problem or the situation that I continue to face. And when it's thrown up to me, do I let Peter rule as a rock or do I become a Simon? Because see, just like Peter, you and I, if we will stand up for Christ, can inspire a whole new generation to serve God with vim and vigor, with strength and spirit, and the church will have her greater days ahead. However, if we, today's church, do not inspire by courageous, visionary leadership in life, the future of the kingdom of Christ is darker than the clouds on the days of the thunderstorms. The choice is up to me today. As a child of God, will I be that courageous person that will inspire my children and my grandchildren to come and all those who watch to be people who stand up bravely and faithfully for the cause of Christ. But in order to do that, I've got to be a Christian. And in order to be a Christian, I've got to do what God says. You know, Jesus himself said, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter, my, enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, Matthew 7, 21. 
What is the will of the Father as it concerns salvation from sin? Well, we know that if I don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is, I'll die in my sins. John chapter 8, verse 24. So I know that I've got to believe. For without faith, it's impossible to please God. Hebrews eleven six, And that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Romans 10, verse 17. So apart from study of God's word, I don't have a chance. I don't have a chance at salvation, eternal life, heaven, any of those blessings that are all, by the way, found in Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. So I've got to get into Christ for all the spiritual blessings are found. Without faith, I can't do it. Jesus tells me in Luke 13, 3 and 5, except I repent, I will perish. Peter in that second sermon in Acts 3 said, repent and be converted. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Verse 19 of that third chapter of Acts. I know that upon my faith I need to turn from my sin and determine with the best of my ability, with God's help, that I will live for him. Then surely I'd be willing to say, Lord, I believe. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, Acts chapter 8, verse 37. Jesus said, not, said that whoever confesses me before me and him I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before me and him I will deny before my Father in heaven. And then having confessed unto salvation, Romans 10, verse 10, that I need to get into Christ. And the only place I find tells me how to do that is Galatians 3, 26 and 27. And we are baptized into Christ, and therefore we put on Christ. Baptism is a burial, Colossians 2.12, into the death of Christ, Romans 6.3 and 4, where the blood was shed, John 19.34, which is that blood that offers forgiveness, Ephesians 1, verse 7. I must come in contact with the blood shed in the death in order to be cleansed from my sin, and that blood that was shed in his death must be found in his death. And the only way in all of God's word that a human is told how he or she can get into Christ's death is by being baptized into it. Again, Romans 6, 3 through 5. For me to say that baptism is not an essential element of God's plan for saving my soul is absolutely out of line with what God says. Because the only place I can get to where the blood is, is the death where it was shed. And the only way I get into the death is immersion in water for the remission of sins. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Don't take my word for it. Study. Study. With an open mind and an honest heart, and I promise you, no, God promises you, as Jesus said, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you'll be filled. It's a promise. You study God's word with an open heart and an open mind. You will find, for the most part, exactly what I just quoted to you. Because that wasn't my plan. That's not a church plan. That's not something the church of Christ teaches. The church of Christ doesn't teach anything. We listen. We learn. God teaches. And that's what God says in his word. Not what Alan says. Not what this congregation says. That's what God says. I can either believe it or I can reject it. But that's your choice. God made his a long time ago. When he commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Romans chapter 5, around verses 6 through 8. 
Do I want to be a faithful child of God? Most everyone in this audience this morning has already been baptized into Christ. Perhaps a prayer, not necessarily for forgiveness of a wrongdoing, but simply for an increase of faith. You remember the man in Matthew 17, Mark 9, that brought his son. And Jesus said, if you believe, all things are possible. And the man cried.